Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Alex, Alex Lancaster. Alex is an evolutionary biologist, engineer, writer, and consultant based in Boston. He completed his doctorate in computational and genomic biology at Berkeley and has worked in R&D in the broadcasting and IT industries in the U.S. and Australia, and he's also held research and faculty positions in academia, including a research position at the Whitehead Institute at MIT and a faculty position at Harvard Medical School. You can read his blog at biosysanalytics.com and follow him on Twitter at biosysanalytics. Along with his colleague Gordon Webster, Alex is co-author of the LeanPub book Python for the Life Sciences, A Gentle Introduction to Python for, the, for Life Scientists. The book serves as an excellent introduction to computer programming for biologists, including those who have never written a line of code. Along with the book, you also get copies of code samples that you uh, can learn from and adapt to your own specific research. In this interview, we're going to talk about Alex's professional interests, his book, and his experience self-publishing through LeanPub. So thank you, Alex, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thanks, Len. Happy to be here. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so uh, I know that you, uh, from your bio, that you studied both physics and electrical engineering before you got into evolutionary biology. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your path through all these disciplines and um, how you ended up at Berkeley. Um, yeah. <laughs> how long have you caught? <laughs> as long as you want. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I yeah I started life um, thinking that I would be uh, yeah get be an astrophysicist. Basically, it was kind of where I sort of was originally. You know, when I was a undergrad, and um, actually I spent about a about a week in a radio telescope down in Canberra in the, uh, you know a while ago now, shall we say another another century, um, and um, realized that that wasn't really going to be for me for the rest of my life, um, although I'm, astrophysics has changed a lot since, but there was a lot of uh, sitting in very uh, quiet, desolate places, um, uh, sort of, you know, pouring over data, and it, it sort of sounds very uh, glamorous on the outside, but the reality of the day-to-day -day just turned out it didn't really appeal to me. Um, so I sort of was trying to figure out what to do, so I decided to finish my engineering degree, which I started with, but I was always interested in um, evolution from a, from a very young age. Um, I think when I picked up Richard Dawkins, um, The Blind Watchmaker, which was written sometime in the 80s. And um, I was just fascinated with the idea of these biomorphs, which were these little creatures that he had um, built evolutionary on a Mac. Um, and they were, you could, it was nothing to do with real biology, but it was very, it was basically you could construct these um creatures from this sort of very simple genetic code and it sort of always stayed with me um so i was always sort of followed along thinking that i would you know if i if if i if i could get training in physics then i could sort of move that over to biology at some point and um but i didn't want to go back to academia straight away so um after i i finished uh up at um in my undergrad i went and worked in the software industry for about four years. Um, I really started, I really did start as a design engineer um, at the ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Australia. It's like the equivalent of the BBC um, in their R&D section for a while. And I sort of cut my teeth on coding and, you know, I did a little bit of hardware stuff, but I, I sort of rapidly realized that software was where it was at and the, the web was growing. And um, 
the sort of very early days. Uh, and so I sort of, I basically sort of set myself around the world, um, doing, uh, uh, software contracts. And so I went to the UK for about a year in the mid nineties, um, worked in, in, um, a little bit in, um, the banking sector, um, a little bit in the telecommunications sector, um, sort of building my tool bag. Uh, but I always had this idea that at some point I'd come back and do grad school. Um, and then, uh, sometime in the late nineties, I decided I, I stumbled across, um, well, I actually had knew about it before this place called the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. Uh, and, um, and I could have been following what they've been doing out there. And they sort of really on the cutting edge of, you know, complex systems and biology and all that stuff. And I thought, well, that's a great, I should just, I should somehow get myself a job there. So I ended up, um, downloading, I think a very early version of the swarm software in the late nineties, um, and sort of, you know, basically playing around with it. And I ended up moonlighting while I was working in a, in a bank on their website, um, building these, um, models, uh, computational neuroscience models with some folks that I, you know, knew in Australia that I had sort of found in Australia. And back then it was, wasn't as easy to find collaborators then. So I sort of had to go to conferences and chase down uh, physical papers and stacks and stuff like that. And so I kind of, helped uh build a bunch of uh models for for those folks and in doing that i i learned this software package called swarm and then it turned out there were a couple of job openings so i i, I applied and i got it and so i was um i found myself in in uh, santa fe new mexico in 97 not knowing a soul wondering quite why i'd why i had gone there um and i was sort of part-time in a phd program at unm university of new mexico in albuquerque um, and I was doing that for a while, trying to do it part-time, but I was really having a lot more fun at the job, um, working at the Institute. So basically they hired me as one of their software developers and I was sort of able to work with a lot of researchers and I, that sort of solidified my interest in, um, in biology, basically in sort of moving back towards the evolution side of things. And, um, so I ended up, uh, let's see, I ended up basically postponing my program and then I reapplied ended up going to Berkeley and studying population genetics and uh, theoretical models of biology for, you know, for, for grad school. Um, and then moved into, um, so all, but all the way, you know, all the, all the way, all the way along interested in soft in sort of keeping up my software skills. So I always had sort of a foot on the computational side and, and a foot in the biology, um, then, you know, I sort of was sort of ended up doing the sort of standard academic track of doing a postdoc, did a couple of postdocs. Um, and then I was, uh, faculty at medical school briefly for a couple of years. And I just, um, decided that that, that the way, well, a lot of things have happened in sort of the, since I moved here. But one of the things that's happened in academia, as you, you may know, is that it's become very, uh, it's become a very sort of tough environment to do kind of more out there research and, um, in the way that I see academia being, going in the last, say, for a, probably a while now, but it's really accelerated in the year since, uh, since the crash, I think. Um, so I, 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 I decided that, um, that it would sort of be more, it would be more interesting, um, to, uh, you know, try my hand at sort of some kind of sort of hybrid career. And, and then at some point, Gordon and I met and, um, we sort of kicked around this idea of creating this company. Uh, and we really got going about, uh, a year ago. 
uh, and that's that's what that's what uh, brought us to amber biology. So, um, so that's a probably uh, overly long-winded answer um, to a shorter question, but um, but that sort of takes us right up to the present. But I'm, I'm happy to go back into any of the the sort of eddies that you found interesting there. But yeah, um, that's, yeah a... that's sort of where I'm. That's how I kind of got here. Yeah, that's a really great answer. Thanks very much for that. I mean, I've had a, a bit of a, um, in conventional terms, I suppose, meandering career myself. So it's really, it's really interesting um, to hear about, um, you know, uh, or to hear from someone who, um, you know, follows their curiosity um, where it takes them, uh, which is, it sounds like, what's uh, what's motivated you. Um, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, I don't. I, I've never been very good. I remember one for really great sort of mapped out career plans. Um, and in a funny kind of way, I think the the way things are moving now, the, the the sort of that notion of the career plan is becoming somehow less relevant. But that's something we can definitely talk about if you want. But yeah, well, I mean, I could I uh, uh, have a doctorate myself in English, not in not in um, biology, but um, I could talk about academia and and things that have been happening. There. Oh yeah, I'd love to hear your experience forever, on that forever, too. But um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, actually, um, uh, I was wondering. Um, when it comes to um, academia and the sciences, this is a, a topic that one sees in the news recently um, mm -hmm. about um, uh, the difficulty that young scientists have uh, getting tenure um, mm -hmm. and, and the um, importance the, the importance that's placed on getting published, um, regardless of necessarily the kind of relevance of the publication. Is this something that you've had? kind of direct experience yeah with? yeah and I, I i yeah i would say that it's um it's more than just the people getting tenure it's people getting the tenure track positions in the first place um so that's uh there's a bottle the bottleneck is even i think even greater there um yeah, and you have a lot of very highly trained you know highly motivated highly trained people who are competing for a very very limited number of of, of slots and um they're the the those slots are uh, certainly not they're certainly not increasing and if anything they're probably decreasing because universities are basically oftentimes cutting their budget and they're often looking to you know supplement their um you know the people that they do bring on they you know i think you know it's one of these things that it can be overstated but i certainly think that at the level of um, sort of the higher administrations, um, they there is definitely an, a push towards finding sort of faculty and research areas that are sort of highly fundable because you know a lot of the the costs of of, uh, of running university have been sort of shifted toward grant federal grant money, especially in the United States, um, and so that puts a lot of pressure on that those those administrators, and that kind of gets translated down to the department. Now, I think kind of the department levels. It's probably the picture is a bit more mixed because I think that most most people there, you know, really want to hire people that are, you know, doing interesting things. And I think that in general, most people want to do the right thing, and you know, are, are interested in sort of intellectual balance and sort of the usual things that you know that academia is sort of known for. But but they find themselves under a lot of pressure. So I think that sort of that combination, and there's sort of you know, it's sort of a system. It's sort of the 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 pressure to publish in prestigious journals sort of has a um and how they're ranked in term, terms of grants has a tendency to sort of um you know factor into the grant making decisions and so that feeds back to the faculty so it's kind of a there's a sort of a 
set of interlocking factors, you might say, that, that drive drive the system towards um, uh, a, a sort of a, a setup where um, you want to minimize risk and maximize return. Um, and so that sort of mi- uh, militates against people doing sort of more unconventional and risky approaches. Um, and it also militates against doing smaller scale and sort of actually cheaper research, which is sort of a strange thing, you know, because, you know, oftentimes these like little side rivulets can be the things that can actually drive science forward. And you really don't know where the next big discovery is going to come from. Um, so yeah, definitely the publishing part is, it's, a, it's, it's part of a larger network of, of problems, but it's definitely a big driver. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me um, to watch um, in North America what I call um, admin creep, like mission creep, but um, admin creep happening at universities where, you know, tuition costs are rising and rising. Um, the cost of running a university is, is increasing. And yet mm-hmm. there's this budgetary pressure on professors uh, right, and scientists right. And, and, and people doing research. And so uh, costs are going up. And yet, there's this squeeze. Um, and it's... no, absolutely. And and in fact, yeah, we 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 are, we're pretty much talking about this for almost a full day on Saturday um, um, at the um, the Ronan Institute's uh, first unconference. I don't know if you might have seen that on the on on the, my blog. Uh, but, no, I didn't um, see that, but I know what an unconference is. Actually, if you could, if you wanted yeah. to describe that, that that would be good. I think. Yeah. So the. So the unconference, um, I'd actually never done one myself before, but it was pretty cool. The idea, we, the idea is that the sort of the theme, the, um, the sort of the topics and the, the areas that get discussed and the talks are effectively sort of self-organized by the participants. And the way that, um, that they did it, uh, on Saturday and I was sort of, sort of loosely involved in organizing it, um, uh, is that, uh, there were three sort of seed speakers at the beginning. They spoke for about 10 minutes each. Um, and then sort of that generated sort of a list of things in people's heads and people would write down, you know, on a piece of paper, like a topic they'd like to discuss. And then you put those pieces of paper around the room and then sort of people walk around and identify the things they'd like to discuss. And then we sort of, you know, proposed topics that were sort of similar, you kind of merge. And then sort of out of that, we got about three distinct groups. Um, and they talk for, you know, we have a discussion for about an hour and a half, I think, or an hour or so. Really interesting, um, group of people. And then we sort of break for lunch and then to repeat the afternoon and then sort of summarize it at the end. And, um, it makes it a really, um, interactive kind of format, um, as opposed to traditional conference where everybody's like sort of like kind of half paying attention and, you know, on their laptops and that kind of stuff. So, um, and it was sort of perfect for the kind of, Thing that we were trying to do, which was to really generate a kind of robust discussion around the future of sort of scholarship in general, and you know, not just in the sciences but in the humanities as well. Like to try and think about ways that we could do things that don't don't necessarily involve the traditional kind of institutions um, that we're using. So that's sort of, that was sort of the big, um, and that was great because we got you know, there were people, as I said, people from you know, like theology and English literature, and there were people from you know, a lot of biologists were represented there because, you know, they tend to be overrepresented in the Boston area. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of, that was really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Is there, do you feel that there's a, a pressure 
building to push people to a model of education that's not university based? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, it's not, um, uh, I don't know if that's, that might ha that may happen or, I mean, I think there's certainly room for, um, you know, a lot of different, uh, paths to gaining knowledge that don't involve going through the sort of ivory tower. Um, um, I think there's sort of a realization, I, I kind of get the sense that sort of realization that like if, uh, it, you know, when you get a scarcity of, um, position or scarcity of sort of, um, of, 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 of what's the right word I'm trying to think of this, basically a scarcity of, um, sort of educational good, shall we say, you know, so everyone's focused on getting into sort of top colleges so they get top jobs and so on. Um. And I think what happens is that, uh, you know, people attach a sort of monetary value to that, to that luxury good. And then oftentimes that becomes the goal rather than the education. But why I, I always sort of assumed for many years that that was sort of a byproduct. That should just be a byproduct of getting education. And, um, but I do think there's a lot of pressure, um, uh, to, you know, getting sort of, you know, it's sort of credentialism, I, I call it, you know, and I mean, yeah, I should, I don't want to be the, you know, pot calling the kettle black because I've, you know, played that game too, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of realize the limitations of that sort of thinking. Um, and so I do think there's kind of a, a realization that maybe like, you know, having everyone go to college in the sort of standard way is not the, won't necessarily work for everybody and may not be desirable in all cases, especially as, you know, especially, you know, especially with the student loan thing. That's the scary. I feel like that's the next bubble. That's the next kind of scary bubble that people haven't really confronted. Um, is a sort of student loan crisis in the United States because every, if everybody's told they have to get this kind of education and then, but then they go through life saddled with all this debt that they can't, they could, they always feel they need to get the kind of job that can support that debt. Then that sort of cuts down on the career options that people can pursue. Yeah. And even, uh, very crucially, um, one of the, uh, I guess, interesting aspects of student loan debt in the states which is over a trillion dollars and greater than credit card debt is that oh, you can't yeah. you can't uh can't go bankrupt you can't can you? go bankrupt um it's incredible i was listening to a, a podcast interview by um ezra klein with um joseph stiglitz recently um the uh nobel prize winning economist and he was saying two of the most sort of consequential decisions that the united states made in the last you know 20 or so years is um one was um, uh, that uh, if a company went bankrupt, rather than the people working for it uh, having the primary claim upon the assets, uh, it was people who held derivatives uh, right. in the company. And, um, and the second one was um, that, yeah, that, that even if you go bankrupt as a student, um, you can't clear your debts. And, and this can happen... It can happen where if there's a student debt that's associated with a parent, the child can actually die before completing the degree. And if the parents go right. bankrupt, they can't clear the debt. Um, yeah. It's, it's very perverse. And uh, when you add into that the um, uh, importance that's placed on uh, the rank of the university that right. you've attended – it becomes very and, – and when you think about the pressures that are on someone who's 17 or 18, right. you know, if you don't get into one of these universities at this age, you can still 
you can still get ahead in life, but you feel like you're behind and you will be in a sense, you know, in, in the conversation behind your whole life. You really will be if you don't get on that track, if you don't go to Berkeley or, you know, or, um, or Harvard or something like that. Um, and the pressures are extremely intense. Um, one of the topics that comes up on this podcast is because of the type of people that often publish lean pub books (laughs) is, um, is, uh, should you, if you want to become a computer programmer or software engineer or developer, should you go to university in 2016? Um, right. And I was wondering what your opinion is about that very specific question. If your goal is not to get an education, not to become an educated person, but to be a developer and work, um, do you think that people should get in the States should get university degrees in computer science? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my sense is not, not, not if it, that's just the one thing you want to do. Like if that's, you know, that's the one thing you want to do and that you're, that you can educate yourself in the other areas in other ways, then I'd say that probably, yeah, that isn't an, an uh, it, at least it shouldn't be a necessity. I mean, I, I do think that it's, it's kind of silly to force people into, you know, I, I feel like the, in the sort of the like more general answer to that is almost to say that, you know, like, like we sort of got one, we still got a kind of a one size fits all system that doesn't really take into account the sort of nature of people's individual, you know, quirky, you know, career paths There's sort of an expectation that there's a set of norms that you follow. And if you're off those norms then you're kind of like probably a little bit weird and, you know, you're probably some kind of, you know, um, you know, person who's, who's failed, which is it's kind of weird because on the same time we lord all the college dropouts like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg for starting all those things. But at the same time, there's sort of, they're kind of the exception that proves the rule a little bit. I feel like, like in general, like I, I, I would say also, I, I, growing up in Australia, um, I never felt that same pressure in the same way. Um, partly because the culture is different. Now things have changed a, a lot in, you know, the 20 or 25 years since I was uh, undergrad, but, um, but there was never a feeling that, you know, you, you know, like that there was always options if you really want to do those super professional things, but, you know, there was a sense that you could get ahead if you, you know, you in a, in a school or maybe you did just a, you know, you didn't go to grad school, you, you know, you went and did the, uh, you know, got some, you went, maybe you went to college, but you didn't really like necessarily like want to build a career in that whatever thing that you studied, but it was sort of a period of your life and you, it didn't define you in the same way that I feel that it kind of defines people here. At least it feels like they feel like they're defined by that experience um uh, and that's just yeah that's a part of a cultural difference um and also the fact that we don't have we do have student loans but they're they work totally differently um so i think i feel like there's a there's this that's a long again a long-winded answer but um but yeah i i i i would like to see a world in which that that we didn't sort of push people into like career paths that you know for which they're you know they don't either don't want or aren't really necessity and just a general openness to like people finding a different way to whatever their passion is. Cause I feel like ultimately that's the thing that matters. And that's the thing that's going to make people productive members of society is not to like say you have to do it this way, but like figure out ways to support what they do um, rather than sort of um, 
sort of like sort of predefine it uh, for them and sort of map it out because things are changing so fast anyway that almost any I feel like almost any career advice these days is like going to be like five years out of date. <laughs> and where did you grow up in Australia? Um, I grew up in Sydney. Okay. Yeah, so so in the suburbs of of Sydney, um, and um, yeah, so yeah. so that's uh, and I was there until like the mid late nineties, um, and um, you know I sort of I came well you know went to the UK and I came back so I sort of I bounced around before coming to the United States, um, and uh, but the, I would say uh, that you did the walkabout. I did the walkabout, yes. Yes, yes. And we're, we're, we're sort of known for that, for being, uh, we tend to like, uh, go overseas and then sort of come back and, um, yeah. When I, when um, I was living in London, I had, um, I, I always had an Australian roommate, uh, which meant I always had at least three Australian roommates. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, because people would always be visiting, including, you know, parents on the couch for two weeks kind of thing. Um, right. Uh, I... but I saw, um, who was it? Um, Paul Rudd, not Paul Rudd. Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd. Yes. Um, talk. I, w I worked for Macquarie Bank um, for a couple of years in London. Oh, um, really? I worked for Macquarie Bank for did... about six months. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, at Rope Maker, one Rope Maker Street. Uh, oh, one down in right down on um uh right in um um you know the uh you know, right in the stock exchange there in yeah, Sydney. Yeah. Oh in Sydney. Yeah. Oh in Sydney. Oh you worked. Yeah, Sydney, so I worked yeah, not... Oh pardon me. I worked. I worked for them in London. Um, right. Uh, but I had my training in Sydney. Um, uh, yeah, that's funny. Um, I worked on their first website ever. Oh really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, so wow. I was on the team that helped build the first uh, Macquarie Bank website. It was about '96, I think. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Writing pearl pearl objects and stuff like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting learning experience too. Um, I realized that banks weren't really my future <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Um, I, I realized that after two and a half years, it took me a bit longer. Um, uh, but, uh, it was an exciting, uh, experience. Um, uh, especially working for, um, an Australian bank trying to make its way in London. Um, right. Right. <laughs> it was quite, wow. quite curious. Which side of the banking uh, part were you, were you on? Uh, investment banking. So I was um, doing mergers right. and acquisitions. Um, uh, it was pretty interesting. Um, right. Uh, in fact, actually quite a few of my colleagues, one of the um, curious and uh, I thought great things about working for Macquarie was that people weren't, there were, there were fewer business school graduates than you might get at other investment banks. Um, oh, that's uh, people were, for example, one of my colleagues who was brilliant um, uh, had done maths and had gone to London on a holiday um, and, uh, you know, got a got, hit the job he got was being an investment banker for Macquarie Bank. <laughs> wow. Uh, or Macquarie Group as it came to be known. And, uh, and, right, uh, right. <laughs> uh, but um, there were a lot of people from, you know, you know, from, you know, a chemist from Perth, um, uh, you know, and, and people from all over, from all kinds of different backgrounds. It was really sort of, this was in the mid 2000s and it was a really interesting, okay. interesting okay. time. Yeah. I'm sure things have developed a lot since then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Swarm. Um, so, uh, yeah. 
I w- it was one of the first open source agent based modeling tools. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little about what, for people who might not know what those are, what, what that is and why Swarm was important. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Swarm came out of um, uh, originally from folks uh, sort of before my time uh, at the Santa Fe Institute in um, New Mexico. Um, and there, there were sort of, for those who haven't, um, I don't know, but it's basically a sort of, I sometimes call it a think tank that I don't like to use that term. It's a small private nonprofit research institute that's dedicated to the sort of the, what they call the science of complex systems. And that sort of in practice means people building computational and mathematical models of, um, of all kinds of systems from natural systems like biological systems through to, um, you know, model of the economy. Um, and, you know, even, 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 even to things like archaeology. And so the sort of, one of the sort of, I guess, you might think of it as a sort of set of language primitives that a lot of these models are built in is sort of in the language, the, the language of, of agents, you know, where rather than like a lot of typical mathematical models where you're, you sort of have an equation, um, that describes sort of the aggregate behavior of, of you know, a bunch of individual um, using, say, differential equations and things like that, you build models where you represent the actual individuals um, and, um, you know, as code. And <clears throat> the sort of natural representation is, you know, in computer science terms, is, is, is that of an object. Um, and so uh, there was basically a, a push that people were basically found they were basically building code structures that were almost identical to each other. Um, and, and then, and then there was a realization that, well, maybe we should have sort of a common platform to, that we could, you know, reuse and then sort of build our sort of domain specific stuff on top. So you'd have a, a library that you would write your, that you would then write your code for your model in, uh, that would call functions from that library. And that's basically how Swarm came about in the mid nineties. And it went through a different number of iterations. I wasn't. I wasn't involved in the prototype. I came into the project a little later, uh, and um, we were sort of at the point then where we were sort of now interacting. So my job was actually kind of interacting with the scientists at the institute and, and visiting people to sort of talk about the science and think about how we could like translate that science into the model and then sort of work with the other people building the kernel to sort of you know, create the right infrastructure. So it's kind of like a bit of a translator between a lot of different disciplines to try and sort of figure out, okay, how do we sort of represent these things to that would work for the largest number of people and the largest number of kinds of scientists. Um, and then sort of also figure out like what, at what level, you know, what abstractions you would want to use that would be generally useful and what abstractions are kind of like the very specific, say, economics or, or sociology or things like that. But yeah, the sort of fundamental notion is that you have a bunch of individuals that all interact, um, and they have a set of rules and they have state and you sort of, you know, it's like Sim City or something, you know, you set, you set the things up and you sort of let the thing go and you see what happens. Um, and that's sort of like the, so Swarm was the first kind of toolkit to do that. And it's sort of, um, it's inspired, you know, several others. Um, and there's still the Swarm Fest meeting is still, 
that that we started back in the late 90s is still going strong it's been going for about 20 years and it's it's i hadn't been for 10 years and i went again for the first time in many years 10 or 11 years two years ago and you know it, it's sort of great to see that the community is still sort of um out there trying to sort of push the boundaries of because it's still, in some sense, it's still kind of a little bit on the edge. <laughs> I'm, I would, I'm surprised that it's not more mainstream, actually. And why do you think it's not more mainstream than it um, is? I think that uh, it's probably because you know models are complicated, um, and it's harder to. Um, I think the, there was probably some early overselling that you know this happens a lot in areas of science that are you know, where everyone's very excited, they, you know, start making promises that they probably can't deliver. Um, so there's a little bit of a, ba- a little bit of a backlash to sort of the complex systems approaches in general and agent-based modeling is one of them. So I think that has some role. Um, they are more complicated to analyze than just traditional models. Um, you can't do all, you don't have the same set of toolkits you can use to do like sensitivity analysis that you can. Um, you know, and, and I think, yeah, this, it sort of dovetails a little bit with sort of the problems of academia in general. There's just not as much. I feel like there was more appetite um, in the late 90s to just try new stuff um, in general in science. And I, I, it could just be that I'm getting older <laughs> or it could just, it, you know, so it may not be maybe in my head, but. But my sense is that, you know, that's still considered things. It's hard to do stuff that's kind of a little on the edge now. Um, You know, people really want to see some like, you know, return on investment, whatever that means in science, Um, which, you know, I think is unfortunate because I still think that, you know, you you know, I think that's it's important for people doing stuff. It's important to do stuff that doesn't always work and might fail, you know, because just because we don't it hasn't worked yet it hasn't worked yet doesn't mean it will never work. Yeah, that's um that's uh it's interesting that the theme of uh sort of stress in academia is coming up because it's something I think about a lot. I mean, you know, uh, you know Einstein goes for a walk and sees a workman on a scaffold and uh you know imagines him falling down um and has a great insight that sort of changes the world and how do you you can't possibly quantify Einstein going for a walk. Um, right. And, right. Uh, you know, I mean, there was something that happened a few years ago in the UK called the research assessment exercise, where basically an incredible amount of professors time was wasted in uh, assessment of right. of work um, under right. the feudal illusion that uh, you can quantify research. Right. Um, right. And uh, you end up with the people who should be doing the kind of forward thinking uh, subordinated to, yeah, to put it crudely, politicians who are trying to make a point to people who are skeptical about higher education fundamentally. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it's very, it's very, uh, you know, cart before the horse kind of stuff. Um, yeah. No, uh, I agree. And, you know, well, actually, that's probably a bad metaphor. It's kind of like, you know, people who really don't have an appreciation for what happens at higher levels of research, being skeptical about it because they don't see progress. Um, And uh, you need to give people the time to have the revelation in the shower um, and to pursue pursue paths that may actually be ultimately be fruitless um, because that's what 
cutting edge thinking is. Um, I was actually wondering, um, what was the uh, work you did for your um, thesis, for your doctoral thesis uh, back in the day? Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I was working in, um, so I kind of switched gears a little bit away from the purely Asian-based stuff, and I was working in um, immunogenetics or immune system genes. So I was I was actually looking, it was actually fairly empirical. I was, I was sort of looking at all these... Um, data sets coming from different populations around the world where they would go up and genotype um, them for these uh, set of genes called HLA genes, so human leukocyte antigen. They're basically involved in the immune system and they're the things that help detect like when you have a bad you know, pathogen that's invaded your body. Um, and one of the questions um, that have puzzled evolutionary biologists um, and people who study population genetics is like why this why this region of the human genome is incredibly polymorphic. Why why are there why are there so many alleles, different variants? Um, and so I was sort of working on sort of trying to quantify that 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 nature of that variation, and then um, you know sort of um, building sort of tools to analyze it, analyze it, and 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 sort of see if we could like basically measure the strength of selection on on at the level, not just the whole gene itself, but also at the level of like the individual uh, residues of amino acids and the actual three-dimensional structure of the of this of this molecule. So yeah, you know, I'm going off on a tangent here, but but yeah, it's sort of effectively um, effectively trying to sort of figure out if we could use the sort of population data to get at sort of functional questions about how um, how evolution has shaped the sort of nature of these molecules. Um, and, and so there was some, I, there was some, you know, statistical analysis and, um, a fair amount of, um, you know, coding. So I built a sort of pipeline for that, um, that's still used today called PyPOP, Python for Population Genetics. Um, and, uh, and also sort of developing sort of statistical methodology for figuring out like, like how to, how to, how to use like things like Monte Carlo, Markov chain stuff to, to sort of, you know, um, to better analyze this data, so that sort of yeah, so it's basically on that sort of interface. That's really quite sort of classic computational biology meets evolutionary biology. That's kind of where I was at, um, and I've still got colleagues and projects that you know that'll probably see the light of day eventually. <laughs> um, but it really got me interested in the sort of you know it really cut me. It sort of cut my teeth on um, uh, on learning one specific biological system really in a lot of detail. Um, um, because the danger with the complex system stuff is great, but you can often find yourself, you know, going off into abstract speculation. Um, so I feel like even though it's not really what I still do on a day to day basis, I still think it's a, it was a valuable for someone like me who, who I always like to be trying new things. It's good to sort of have deep training in one area. You know, I, I think of it like the fox and the hedgehog, mm-hmm. if you've heard that analogy, yeah. um, uh, which is why I call my, I call one of my blogs the curious fox hog. Because <laughs> mm. it's like I sort of feel like you kind of, it's good to have, you know, it's good to have a deep training in one area, but at the same time, it's um, it's good not to get too tunnel vision. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of where I came in on on that stuff. 
And is that related to evolutionary systems biology, which I've I've read you're you're involved in, or is that something different? Yeah, I mean it's part of it. Um, you know, I, when I when I after I left um, my grad program, I worked I uh, started working um, in models of vulnerability, but specifically related to uh, prions. And it turns out the prions are um, this interesting mechanism for uh, storing variation that can be um, released when when organisms are under stress. And so it's kind of a fascinating. And I think of that as sort of a classic example of sort of evolutionary systems biology because you're the systems biology, as I kind of think of it, is kind of like the mechanisms and the sort of, you know, the networks that, you know, are ultimately sculpted by evolution. And that's kind of like, I think that's the kind of ultimately, you know, the people are trying to integrate sort of, you know, evolution for a long time was very, the evolutionary theory is very abstract and it didn't refer to anything like, um, you know, any sort of real systems, just they would have these models about consider a local two alleles and play around with it. But now we have a lot more data and we can say things like, well, we now we know this trait is generated by these networks. What are the different evolutionary paths that you might take, the system take? And so that's kind of what I think of as evolution system biology. Um, but my PhD wasn't really in, it didn't really exist even as a discipline. Um, um, but it was, again, it was sort of, it was sort of, the training I needed to get into that area later. And um, actually, this is kind of a selfish question because it's a preoccupation of mine, but um, what do you think about <laughs> evolutionary psychology? Um, I don't really think about it a lot. I used to read a lot about it back in the day. Um, um, I'm a little bit skeptical of it in general. Just I, 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 I'm I'm a little I'm always a little bit skeptical of explanations that involve um, sort of uh, predefining our notion of what like a what what's what's fit in the environment, and I think the, the problem as I see with sort of evolution psychology or some of it anyway is the fact that it it tends to sort of um, it tends to sort of overestimate the role of things like you know competition and, um, you know, um, sort of, you know, the survival of the fittest kind of side of evolution, whereas evolution as a whole includes all kinds of not just, you know, competitive processes, but cooperative processes and symbiosis and mutualisms and all this kind of rich, these kind of rich dynamics that I kind of feel that some of the, at least some of the evolution psychology stuff is a little on the simplistic side. Um, and it also sort of, you know, then that you sort of, the, it also interfaces with sort of these arguments more about that come from more from the political and economic side that kind of can easily be used to sort of justify a, sort of an existing sort of power structure, you know, or to say, oh, well, this is, you know, there's always a danger when you go into nature and say, um, oh, look, it's done this in nature. So, you know, it must be, uh, that must be right or somehow, or, or, you know what I mean? Like that, that, yeah. that's my sort of main problem with, some of the evolution of psychology. Having said that, I don't have a problem in principle with studying, like, you know, ev using evolutionary principles for, you know, in all kinds of areas in economics and psychology. Um, I think I really, I really like the stuff that David Sloan Wilson works on, which is kind of integrating economics and, 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 and evolutionary thinking, complexity thinking. Um, I've been reading his economics blog, um, quite a bit lately. Um, 
And I, so, and that involves, you know, psychology, but I, it, it, yeah. So as far as the sort of classic evolutionary psychology, um, stuff, I, I, again, I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, but I felt like it, at least the sort of the version of it in the nineties, early two thousands, you know, was always a little bit iffy to me. Yeah. The, um, the, the fundamental, um, question I have about it is how do you do experiments? Um, right. Uh, it, I mean, if it's, if you can't do experiments, it's not science. And, um, uh, it seems it, I mean, to put it crudely. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, you see things like for some reason, uh, the, um, former, I think probably now former editor of the science and technology section of the economist loved evolutionary science, kind of just so stories. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I mean, you see this in this sort of science press generally, but things like, I mean, I think they, they actually did this and mentioned this in the economist once, but, uh, they said that they've proven that women have a preference for pink, um, and that this is cross-cultural and, uh, that, um, it's probably because when in, in the olden times, in the, in the long, long ago, um, that, uh, women had to search for berries. Um, and so they right. were, you know, selected for, uh, the, you know, ha experiencing pleasure when seeing color in nature. And, you know, this was in like the two thousands, like this wasn't, right. you know, in like 1810, this was in like 2010. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it just seems like there's, I mean, the stuff that surfaces obviously in the press is going to be, is going to tend towards nonsense. Um, yeah. but how does, how can one possibly experiment run experiments on human psychological evolution right right yeah no that that would be my problem with it too it just yeah the the, ju the just so nature of it is uh you know like yeah that it, it, it rears its rears its head in those circumstances and um yeah and the danger is because they can easily reinforce people's sort of preconceptions and scientize something that really shouldn't be scientized you know, if you to you to coin a term, yeah, that's a great <laughs> word. Um, um, uh, yeah, um, uh, on the subject of um, uh, uh, science um, and uh, programming, which is um, what your book is about, um, I, I wanted to ask you how important is it for scientists uh, these days to learn how to program? I think it's, I think it's pretty important, um, especially in. Especially as in more the more quantitative disciplines like um, you know like 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 the life sciences um, are becoming rapidly um, and but I also don't think that one should sort of assume that that's you know the only thing you need um, and that you know everything should be uh, you know that you should sort of drop your pets and. And, you know, and, and just do coding. Although I, I have done preparing once, but I'm, you know, I know that I'm never going to be a great, uh, um, you know, bench biologist. But, um, but I think, yeah, I think getting your head around going a little bit beyond spreadsheets. And I mean, I'll be saying this in the book blurb is going to be really important. And it's interesting, actually, it's, it's the, especially with the swarm fest, I'm meeting a lot of people who are not even scientists who are like you know, the digital humanities people are really kind of picking up on the programming side of it too. Um, and, you know, um, 
there's all and the, so yeah i think it's important i think also you have to sort of simultaneously keep in mind that you know you programming is ultimately still just a hammer um and you don't want to make you know everything a nail so um i i do the sort of flip side of like on on one hand i'm like yeah we we should definitely people should get used to computational and quantitative thinking and all that good stuff but at the same time we shouldn't sort of you know get rid of people who work in museums and that just love you know you know collecting specimens or you know like 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 there's room for all of it all of those skills and people um and i i sort of so i'm a little i get a little bit nervous when people say well everyone needs to learn to code because you know that's what everyone is going to be coding in the future i don't think that's true um having said that like i think another reason to code for everybody and you know scientists in general um is that you know it's good to know just the thinking because a lot of the systems that you'll be interacting with are going to be engineered which means kind of knowing what knowing the fact that there's code behind that what does that actually mean and what the limitations are just to sort of be just to sort of be a, a generally scientifically literate citizen i i like it there's a great book by um douglas rushkoff called program will be programmed i don't know if you saw that um it's really small really i i always give it to people who sort of wonder about programming because he has a you know, it's, it is a good spiel about like, yes, you should probably code, but you don't have to, but you should definitely know what's involved um, as this has become more part of your world kind of thing. So, yeah, so I think my position is kind of a little, maybe a little bit more nuanced than you might expect just because, you know, I, I also realize the limitations of the sort of you know, data-driven, metric-obsessed kind of thing that, you know, we often can get ourselves into. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it's good to know those things, know how to, how to, how to analyze news code, either, even if you don't do it in your, as your full-time job, if for no other reason that, that then, you know, like what's going on behind the scenes kind of thing. Um, and you know how code is being deployed. Um, um, so, so I think from that perspective, I think it's, I think, yes, people should learn to learn to code, even if they don't, even if it's not their only thing uh and my last question is um why did you decide to publish your book on leanpub uh it's i should say by the way uh python for the life sciences is a really great uh book it a ton of work went into it it's really well done um oh, so, yeah i mean i mean that i see a lot of books um yeah and yeah it's, it's really good um and yeah i was wondering why you chose to publish it with uh with us yeah well you know Kind of, we, you know, we kicked around a lot of different things that are when we started our consulting firm. And, um, you know, one of the things that Gordon and I both agree on is like, we don't, we don't, we don't love gatekeepers. <laughs> and we love, we love the idea of people sort of doing things from the bottom up. And, you know, so we, I mean, we looked at, you know, thought about like approaching a publisher and proposing it, but we just felt well, that's going to add a lot of, you know, stuff in front of us and let's just write the damn thing. And, see where it lands and and then when we sort of started looking around actually a friend of mine on a slack channel that, that i um recommend uh he's always got cool things to he writes a lot of cool things about programming and science and complex systems and they, his name is bill Tozier. um vagary.com is his website um he had just mentioned it in passing and i was like oh i should check this thing out and um I went over there and I said, this is really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, we sort of, um, 
you know, so we, 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 we were sort of initially thinking, oh, well, we'll just sort of put it up and see what happens. Um, and, you know, we, we, uh, we really thought that it would be, um, it just sort of, it sort of fit our sort of general ethos. Um, and obviously you, the, you have a really great, uh, you know, um, sort of a revenue model, which I think is really good. Um, and, you know, to be honest, like I, you know, looking at the way Amazon works and, these big e-publishers, um, you know, they started to act more like rentier type, you know, uh, models. Um, like and what, so, like what, sorry? Like sort of more like, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of monopolizing the market now. And so uh-huh. they're sort of able to set them, you know, they're being, being like able to set the monopoly prices. Um, mm-hmm. and I would rather support in general, like, you know, new emerging, businesses and um organizations that are sort of you know trying to uh do trying to you know make a way to um you know uh you know make a living without necessarily having to create a you know massive uh infrastructure um and so yeah that's kind of why why lean pub um and self-publishing seems the way to go and um um, that said, you know, if, if a major publisher was to pick us up tomorrow, um, we, I guess we could continue doing both. But, um, but I would, yeah, I think that, you know, I like that idea of, um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really important to, to, um, um, you know, like, 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 like I like, so like, for example, with our, you know, consultancy, we're trying to sort of build a sustainable business. We don't necessarily want it to be, you know, we don't want to be taking over the world. You know, we're not, we're not after world domination. We're out to sort of, you know, earn enough money to keep paying the bills so that we can do the cool science or research or art or whatever it is that we're doing, not just, you know, you know what I mean? So that's kind of like part of, that was sort of part of it. Um, that, that I, I like it when I see other people doing, I feel like it's good. If I see other people doing cool new things, I'm always like, I want to support that thing rather than like, you know, even if it means like, okay, I don't get like the massive return in the immediate, you know, I feel like it's better to, in the long run, we'll all be better if we, we kind of do that. That's yeah. a sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. That's a really, really great answer. Um, the, um, uh, one of the things, I mean, in, in many ways, your book is kind of the, the classic, um, uh, lean pub book. And I mean, in that, in the sense, the book that we love to see because it's, um, I think your your well, both your minimum and your suggested price is thirty four ninety nine, and it's three hundred four pages. And you know, if you're in the life sciences or a biologist and you're looking to learn to code, I mean, this is a book you get great value from. Definitely worth thirty five bucks. Um, yeah, we, and, and we think so too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, definitely. And um, uh, the inter- one of the interesting things that sort of you know we're still learning about this new model of self publishing, but Amazon uh, decreases the royalty rate that it pays when you go over nine ninety nine for yeah book. yeah we noticed that too uh, yeah yeah I mean from seventy to thirty percent right so yeah um, they're basically saying they're basically saying all ebooks are interchangeable um, and uh, the price should be less than ten dollars right um, right exactly they drive you towards that yeah and and I mean I think that that's probably an appropriate price point for novels. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and 
I still think if you are writing a novel, you should have it on LeanPub as well because you will make more money because it's 90% royalty. But yeah. if your book is worth more than nine ninety nine, and I don't just mean that because the price is more than nine ninety nine, if it's actually worth more than nine ninety nine, um, you should not be publishing in a place that's meant for uh, novels. Um, yeah, books right. like books like yours, books like so many other LeanPub books are actually can like change well, I mean not specifically your book but like for, for other types of books they can change the amount you can charge people for the work that you do right. because you've learned right. something new and you've got skills that you didn't have before they can help right. uh, increase the uh, skill level that you have and something right. like that people are uh, willing to pay uh, more for um, and uh, authors should um, earn more from I think um, right yeah, and it was a basically a you know a little, over, a little under a year. I mean, not full time. You know, wasn't like you know forty hours a week, seven days, you know, twenty four seven type thing. But you know, we, you know, we put a fair amount of. And you know, I, I, the other reason I liked it um, was that the way we did it was that it, because we had the freedom to do it at the kind of pace we wanted, we could sort of write the book that we wanted to write, not necessarily the book that you know sort of someone else had kind of like decided like fit the right market niche so we could sort of take our time and, you know, make it a little bit, you know, lighter and put in jokes and, you know, things like that that might not have, you know, passed muster or, you know, may not have fit into, I don't know, some other publisher's kind of conception of what they wanted. So, you know, we like the idea of having a book that, you know, has a bit of personality, um, you know, because tech books can be kind of on the dry side. So, um, um, so I, I, that was another nice thing about it. And, and also the iterative nature of it, cause it just, it also goes with the whole software development philosophy that we kind of use in our own consulting, you know, the, the sort of, um, agile type thing of like, you know, release it, get feedback, you know, improve, you know, I, I feel like that's a really good model to, um, and we didn't fully embrace it. Like we didn't do chapter by chapter, but you know, we're certainly going to, upload new versions and you know so i feel like that sort of that approach is really you know and i think it's still pretty new for um for uh um the book publishing world still i think and um but you know you see this you see how effective it is in software um at you know um at you know getting better sort of um um you know more robust uh, if it's done properly of course um kind of result so that was another thing that was kind of like cool about the lean pub thing was that, like that I like that. I like that idea that you get something out. I feel like in general doing anything creative or anything new, get something out there. It's not perfect, you know, improve it, you know, improve it, do it in public, improve it, get better. Um, you know, I, I'm taking, uh, you know, I'm learning this just myself by taking improv classes. Um, the same kind of thing. Like you, you, you're not, not that great at the beginning, but you perform when you, when you get in front of an audience, you know, you, you get better. So it's kind of like, it's kind of a bit like that. I mean, you know, just like sort of like not taking the risk, exposing yourself, you know, people might not like every little bit of it, but that's okay. You, you, you get better at it. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like that, that it fits with that sort of philosophy. Um, just before we go, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask someone living in the United States the day before the big election. <laughs> um, what's the What's the mood like in? Uh, well, you're in Arlington, Massachusetts. Um, you were saying uh, before we started this interview, just north of Boston, I think. Um, what's What's the mood like down there? In the greater Boston area, yeah. Um, 
Um, I think I wanted a baby of sort of, uh, you know, what's the thing, you know, acceptance, grievance, you know, with the stages of grief. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not, you know, like, I feel like we're, we're at sort of acceptance phase now with just, just in the sense of like, whatever will be, will be, um, you know, with everyone's just so over it. Um, so much, so many, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't read any more editorials. I can't read 538.com. I can't, you know, I, I, it's like, I just like, every, I feel like almost everything has been said that is going to be said. And, um, you know, it's just going to be up to the voters now. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, people are, people are concerned, obviously. I think that, you know, um, yeah, I think the, 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 you know, definitely, you know, in our community, because, you know, we're around a lot of like, you know, academics and scientists and people as well, what the results will be for all of that. So that's something that, um, I think that, that, you know, that definitely comes up when we're, you know, in, in conversations with friends and colleagues. Yeah, well, thanks very much for that. That's very well said. <laughs> and, um, it'll be a, it'll be an interesting artifact because this will come out after, uh, people know uh the results yeah what the result was um, yeah well uh, uh, may i ask you what your uh your what what's the view from 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 canada um i could talk about that for a long time i suppose um <laughs> uh i think that um probably um most canadians are quite concerned um that um donald trump could win to put it straightforwardly right. yep um uh you know, Canada's a, a more complicated place than Canadians pretend it is. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the spectacle over the last, like, two years of the campaign of, uh, you know, our, um, you know, we have one border, right? Um, right. And uh, it's with the United States. Um, and to see someone who appears to be driven by uh, no sense of responsibility and not constrained by reason um, within a hair's breadth of being the president of the United States is something that I think people are concerned by. I mean, I think that um, knock on wood, when this comes out, we'll all know. Uh, but yeah, I think, well, hopefully I think, uh, we will be able to breathe that sigh of relief. And... Yeah, I think, I think people here are like, you know... Um, in a sense, complacent. I mean, we just kind of take it for granted that Americans will make the reasonable choice um, right. to speak on behalf of all sorts of people who disagree with me and generalize dramatically. But like, um, uh, you know, it's uh, we're watching. We're always watching what's happening in the States, yep. but we're we're definitely watching now. I'm just getting a memory of um, uh, when I, I stayed up late in 2000, uh, to make sure that Al Gore won Florida before going <laughs> to bed uh, and woke up to a different world. Um, yes, yes. And I just think, yes, I was, I remember that election well. I would only be in the States for a few years at that point. And I, that's when I started paying attention to to politics. I, I, I think that a lot of people um, had, uh, I think it's true. It's again a massive generalization to say that academics and researchers tend to try and go about their business to pretend that like no, nothing's going you know, to affect them or, you know, it's like it's above them or they want to talk about it. But I think this election has certainly made people pay, sit up and pay real attention because, um, 
you know, like, uh, you know, like uh, even in other elections of other presidents, uh, candidates, you know, there's sort of a general agreement that, you know, probably the NIH would continue and NSF all those fun. They're not about to abolish them, but, you know, sort of all bets are off with, with Trump. And I think that's the, so I think that's what makes people really scared because it's like, you don't really don't know. It's like a lot of the things that you take for granted just could not be true anymore. I hadn't um, had actually thought about that, but that's the National Institutes of Health and um, Health, yeah. uh, and the National yeah, Science, Science Foundation, Foundation, and I hadn't thought right. about that. Um, but yeah, no. yeah. Well, um, <laughs> thanks very much, Alex. I guess yeah. Um, on that on that uh, yeah, cheery on, note. On that cheery note, um, but yeah, thanks very much um, for uh, taking the time to do this uh, really fun interview, um, and uh, thanks for publishing your book on LeanPod. Oh, you are most welcome. It's been really fun. Thanks.